1 Samuel. And so, Father, we desire right now to just um, to go through this book once again and, and just gain and, Lord, make application and learn. And we know there's so much here for us to, to glean from. And, and, Lord, I pray that you would just teach us. And, Father, that you would just um, minister to us. And so, Lord, we are so thankful that we can be here on this night and study your word. And so, Lord, bless your people and teach them. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. First Samuel is kind of a, a transition. And uh, I don't know if I'm hearing some music or something. Maybe the kids are doing something. The kids, okay. So I didn't know if it's angels or what's going on. <laughs> <laughs> what's going on. But First Samuel is a book that is a, a, a transitional book. And I think it's important for us to, to just stop for a minute before we go into the study and, and to talk about that and discuss that. Because what we're seeing is the days of the judges are over. As we went through the book of Judges and we saw that time where the children of Israel uh, were in dark times because of their rebellion against the Lord. And when you go through the Old Testament, there's different times of transition in their history that's important to know. For example, in the book of Genesis, in chapter 12, when Abraham was called to, um, to be the father of a nation, as uh, the Lord called Abraham and said, I'm going to make your descendants many and a great nation, and I'm going to give you this land. And so we read the book of Genesis, the beginnings, all the way from um, the time of Abraham and where he would have Isaac and then Jacob, and Jacob would have his sons uh, who would be the patriarchs of the 12 tribes of Israel. And the book of Genesis ends with jo Jacob's son, Joseph, um, being the prime minister in Egypt after a series of events that takes place, as you read in the book of Genesis. And then what we see is that um, Jacob and his family ends up in Egypt at the end of the book of Genesis because of famine that is in the land. And so just as Abraham was told that his descendants would be in that land for four generations or 400 years, that ends Genesis, and then we see a transition, don't we? And in that transition of their history, we see it fast forward those 400 years to where Moses is on the scene, and then he's called by God to bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. And so that's what Exodus tells us, the story of uh, Moses going there to Egypt, and um, it would be the plagues that came down upon Egypt, Passover would be instituted, they would come out of Egypt into the wilderness to Mount Sinai. And there in the book of Exodus, we see that God made a covenant with his people. And he gave them the law. He gave them the religious and civil uh, ceremonies that they were to keep. Uh, and he was preparing them for when they went into the promised land. And God, in this covenant that he made with them, as you know, he said that if you follow after me and you um, keep my commandments and my statutes, then I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to keep you from, um, you know, your enemies, and, and you won't be in captivity, and I'll bless the land and protect you. And all these blessings that were given to them, as long as they kept uh, that covenant and kept believing in him and walking with the Lord and keeping the commandments of God. 
But if you forsake me, the Lord said, then you're going to find yourself in captivity, and you're going to find yourselves being defeated by the enemy, and you're going to see that the land's going to be uh, parched. I won't send the latter rains. And all these things, the curses that were given to the children of Israel, if they disobeyed the Lord. And so that was the book of Exodus. And of course, they spent 40 years in the wilderness. Then the book of Joshua, another transition, as Joshua would then finally lead them into the promised land as they crossed the Jordan River. They would conquer the land, begin to drive out the inhabitants. And then that generation after Joshua, the death of Joshua, as we saw at the beginning of the book of Judges, we saw that that generation began to turn to those Canaanite gods and forsake the Lord. And what happened was exactly as the Lord said. So that's what we looked at just recently in the book of Judges, going through all those chapters, that period of about 400 years where they were in a cycle, really. They were ones, the children of Israel, that uh, would be in disobedience. They were turning to the Canaanite gods. They found themselves in bondage to their enemies, impoverished. Um, there was famine that was in the land. All these things that took place, just as God said would happen when he made that covenant with them. And then as the children of Israel would cry out to the Lord, the Lord in his mercy and his grace would raise up a judge. And so we looked at those judges in the book of Judges from chapters you know, 3 through chapter 16, the different judges that God raised up to free them from their bondage that they would find themselves in as they were in bondage to the, the Midianites and the Canaanites and, and the Amorites and the Philistines and all those inhabitants around them. And so it would end the book of Judges with the last judge that was mentioned with Samson. And you recall the story of Samson in chapters 13 through 16 of the book of Judges. And so it deals with that period of history that was very dark. So this is why 1 Samuel is a transitional book, because now what we're going to see is the end of the days of the judges. And now we're going to see Samuel, who is going to be a primary character in this book, is going to be the last of the judges. And he's going to lead the children of Israel in a time where it's now going to go to the days of the kings. And so 1 Samuel, what we see here is those days of judges coming to an end. And not only have we seen so far in the Old Testament um, the children of Israel as God has made a covenant with them, but also as you go through the Old Testament, you see three main offices, don't you? You see the priestly office that is uh, being operated in, in the ministry that the Lord gave to his people. Um, we saw that with Leviticus as God would, uh, after the tabernacle was constructed there in the book of Exodus, it was done. So now I'm going to um, commission and ordain the priest to come along and to offer those sacrifices and do the priestly ministry there at the tabernacle. We know that the priest would come from the direct descendants of Aaron, from the tribe of Levi. And so those would be the priests. The Levites were given certain responsibilities. So we've seen and talked quite a bit about the ministry of the priests and what they were to do. But now as we go into 1 Samuel, we know that another office that we see very important in the Old Testament was the office of the prophet. And what we're going to see here is Samuel is really going to be the first one that's going to fulfill that office. He's going to be a prophet to the leader of Israel, which is now going to go to the days of the kings, right? Because the people are going to come in a few chapters here to Samuel, and they're going to say, Samuel, we want a king. We want to be like the other nations. 
And it was Samuel that we're going to see was very grieved by that. And the Lord comes to Samuel and says, Samuel, they haven't rejected you. They've rejected me. I wanted to be their king. That's why I called them Israel, governed by God. Because I have given them the civil laws and the religious laws and the ceremonial laws. And I've given them their allotments and the land. Uh, they know how it is that they are to live. And I was to be the one that truly was to be their king and to rule over them. I, I've set up the leaders when it comes to the priests and the Levites and the judges and all of that. But yet they wanted a king to rule over them so they can be like the other nations. Rather than having the other nations who had kings look at the children of Israel and, said, and say, Listen, their king is God and they're following after him. And they're being blessed by him. And, and so we want to be like them. We, we want to come to know the true and the living God. So Samuel here, he, he's going to be grieved. But God says, you go and you anoint Sam, uh, Saul that is, as the first king. And then we're going to see David is going to be anointed king. Then after David is Solomon. So Samuel is going to bring the, the children of Israel out of this time of darkness to better times. And that is the days of the kings. But we will also see... <coughs> That as we continue in this period from the first King Saul up until the time that they go into captivity, that would be the house of Israel uh, going off into captivity by the Assyrians in 720 B.C. And then, of course, as we discuss on Sunday morning in the book of Daniel in 605 B.C., finally, it would be the house of Judah that went off into captivity by the Babylonians. So all those years and all those kings that we read about here uh, after David and after Solomon built the temple and then we see the ten northern tribes split off and the different kings that are told to us in First and Second Kings and then First and Second Chronicles specifically talks about those kings there in the house of Judah. So First Samuel, a real important transition that has taken place here. It is interesting that First and Second Samuel were one book um, and it was not separated until the Old Testament was translated into Greek, that is the Septuagint. And when it was translated into Greek, as the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, then it was broken off into two books. You have 1 Samuel, which consists of 31 chapters, and then 2 Samuel, which consists of 24 chapters. And it is always asked, who was the human instrument that wrote 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. We know that there is one author of the scriptures, and that is God. But God, through the Holy Spirit, would use certain men to write these words down. Paul would say to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for correction, for reproof, for doctrine, for instruction in righteousness. So we know that there is one author, that is the Holy Spirit, but the human instrument used to write First and Second Samuel, there's a little bit of discussion and debate on that. But it's interesting that the Jewish Talmud, which is a collection of Jewish ancient writings, tells us that um, it was Samuel who wrote the first 24 chapters of First Samuel. Then in chapter 25, we have a record of Samuel's death. And it would be from that point, chapter 25 of First Samuel, to the end of Second Samuel, then it would be Nathan the prophet, Nathan the prophet that comes on the scene after Samuel, he's the prophet that's going to speak to King David, and then Gad the seer who wrote the rest of uh, 1 Samuel and then 2 Samuel. And we get a hint of that in 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verse 29. So here is 1 Samuel, a little bit of background that I've given to you, and, and, and just 
understanding a little bit of history, how important this book is in the transition in the history of the children of Israel. So we read in chapter 1, Now there was a certain man of Ramathaim, Zophim, of the mountains of Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Suf, an Ephraimite. So we're introduced to the certain man. He, he's from Ramathaim, Zophim, and and it was Rama that was uh, the name of the city. It was shortened to Rama, about 25 miles north of, of where Jerusalem is today. So here's this man, Elkanah, that we're introduced to. And he's there in that area where the Ephraimites live. But he is, as you follow the genealogy here in chapter 1, he's from the tribe of Levi. So he's from that priestly tribe there. He's in that area of, of Rama, which is in the middle of the country. And it's interesting that Ramath, uh, Theam, Zophim, would later on be known in Jesus' day as Arimathea. Now, does that ring a bell with you? Remember Joseph of Arimathea? That he's the one that prepared the body of Jesus for burial. He's the one that owned the tomb um, that Jesus' body was put into. So he was from this same area. And so here is this man that we're introduced to, Elkanah. And verse 2 tells us he had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Penina. Uh, Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. And this man went up from his city yearly to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. And the two sons of Eli, Hopni and Phinehas, the priests of the Lord, were there. So here is a man that has two wives. Now what the scriptures record is, is that he had the fact that he had two wives. The scripture is not endorsing multiple wives. We will see as we go through 1 Samuel and we go and look at David and we look at Solomon, they had multiple wives. David is going to have many wives. Uh, Solomon is going to have hundreds of wives. And uh, so the Bible doesn't endorse multiple wives. Matter of fact, you recall back in the book of Deuteronomy that the Lord knew that they were going to ask for a king. And in the book of Deuteronomy, in the law, you recall that the Lord said, when you ask for a king, when you go into the promised land, that the king, that he is to, first of all, not multiply horses. He's not to multiply gold and silver, and he's not to multiply wives. What did Solomon do? He did all three. He had all kinds of horses all over the land, and you can go to Israel today, and you can see the ruins of where Solomon had uh, these huge stables that perhaps had four or 500 horses. Uh, he multiplied wives, of course, 300 wives, 700 concubines. He multiplied gold and silver, and, and that's what Solomon did. And God's word said that they weren't to do that. And so here is Elkanah has two wives, and probably what's being um, told to us here is we see that uh, his first wife, and that was Hannah, had no children, and Penina had children. So what probably happened here is because Hannah had no children, and as we have discussed, because inheritance was so important back in ancient Israel, that uh, to carry on the, your name and to carry on the inheritance through your children, because Hannah didn't have any children and, and was barren and wasn't producing children, he probably married Penina here and had children with her. So that's probably the, what's taken place here. And, um, and so here is um, verse 4 as we read um, Elkanah that would go up, or verse 3, 
uh, to the um, the city of Shiloh, and he would worship and sacrifice. Now, the tabernacle that we studied about in the wilderness, it's been here in Shiloh for almost 400 years now. In Joshua chapter 18, we saw that Joshua had the tabernacle be established there in Shiloh, which is, again, not far from where um, Elkanah is and where he lives. And Shiloh is interesting. Um, if you go to Israel, you can't really go there. You can, but if you take a tour of Israel, they won't take you in there because it's right in the heart of the West Bank. And because of the political situation, you can't go to Shiloh. But in the early 90s, I was at Shiloh, and it's very interesting the excavating that they have done in that area where the tabernacle sat for 400 years. And in that area, the hills are all barren and they're all rocky. And I, I find that to be intriguing because in those 400 years that the tabernacle is there at Shiloh during the days of the judges. And remember in chapter 1 here, we are at the end of the days of the judges. It's still dark times here in Israel. And those barren hills just kind of remind you of the barrenness of what was taking place, the dryness of what was taking place spiritually in the nation. And so here is, though, this man who's a godly man, as we're going to see, who takes his family up to Shiloh to sacrifice and to give offering. Of course, every male was to go to the tabernacle to worship the Lord at the feast three times a year. And that's what he's doing here. And so he goes up in verse 4, whenever the time came for Elkanah to make an offering, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah, although the Lord had closed her womb. So I think that as we look at um, verse 6, again, here's a man, he loved his wife, but she was barren, wasn't producing any children. So he wanted his inheritance to continue, so he married his second wife. And we can see that, that he treats her well, Hannah. Um, even though she's not producing children, he, he loved her. And whenever that they would go and give a sacrifice, part of that sacrifice would go to the family as they would celebrate the feast. And he would give her a double portion. But we see in verse 7, so it was year by year when she went up to the house of the Lord that she, um, she provoked her, and therefore she wept and did not eat. And so um, it was Penina that was provoking Hannah. And you know what it was that she was saying. She was saying that, you know what? God doesn't love you. God's cursing you. And they saw it as a curse back in those days if you couldn't have children. And God is not with you. And you know what? Your husband, he's going to stop loving you. I can just imagine that that's the way that, that Penina was doing uh, that provoking towards Hannah. And, and I believe that it was Penina that knew that Elkanah loved Hannah and gave her a double portion. And so it produced jealousy and envy, didn't it? It's kind of like Jacob. Jacob had his sons. And Jacob, his favorite son was Joseph. And Jacob loved Joseph more than his other sons, the scripture says, and gave him a coat of many colors. And it was because of that that envy and jealousy was produced in the sons of Jacob. And so what did they do? They threw Joseph in a pit and sold him off into slavery. And so here we see um, the second wife, Penina uh, of Elkanah, that is jealous and full of envy and provoking her and, and telling her as she's weeping and in anguish that, that, you know what, you're no good spiritually. God doesn't love you. 
Have you ever had anybody do that to you? That perhaps things aren't going as well as you thought, or God isn't blessing in a way that you thought he was going to bless. And maybe there are those that will come along and just begin to kind of tear you down. and They're not encouraging. Maybe there's a little bit of jealousy or envy that is there that people will have towards you because you are one that you're desiring to cry out to the Lord and desiring to continue to trust in the Lord. And we're going to see that's what Hannah does. But they will come along and they will say things like, God doesn't love you and, you know, look at you. And, and I hope that we are ones that we never do that. That we're always building people up and the things that come out of our mouths are those words that are going to encourage people in the Lord and build them up. And there are times, certainly, that we're going to have to bring correction to people. But we do it out of attitude of love. But we never, with envies and jealousies, try to tear somebody down so we can be built up because God won't bless that. And so here we see that Hannah, as we look at this family, she's very much in agony and, and she's very much is, is um, anguished in her soul. As we read verse 8, then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep and why do you not eat? And why is your heart grieved? Am I not better to you than ten sons? And so Elkanah here, I, I think he's really trying to minister to her and bring comfort to her, but he's being a little bit insensitive, isn't he here? Essentially what he's saying here is this. He's saying, why do you worry about not having sons? You have me, don't you? Aren't I better than ten sons? What else could you want and need since you have me as such a great husband? That's what he's saying. And I think that in honesty of his heart, he's, he's trying to minister to her, but he doesn't understand her. And husbands, First Peter chapter 3 tells us that as husbands that we're to live with their wives in an understanding way. And I hope that we are ones that, that we go to the Lord, husbands, because we need to. And to say, help me to live with my wife in an understanding way. That is, the things that are important to her need to be important to you. It's not just hearing her, but listening to her and being sensitive to her. And to understand that there are things that are important to her. Because guys, we can have a tendency that we can be insensitive. I, I know a lot of you guys aren't. But there, I know in my own life that there can be those times, even in 20 years of a blessed marriage, that I've been a bit insensitive. And, and, and the things that are important to my wife, I kind of forget about. Or I don't take very seriously. And it can be little things, guys. But those little things that are important to your wife need to be important to us. And so the Lord gives us a commandment. You live with your wife in an understanding way. And that's part of leading our families and being the head of the wife and loving our wives as Christ loves the church is that you live with her in an understanding way and to understand her heart and to hear her heart on matters. And it may not be important to you, but if it's important to her, then we need to be ones to understand this, that it needs to be important to me and to live with my wife in an understanding way and to minister to her in that way of understanding and being sensitive and ministering to her needs, loving and cherishing her. So Elkanah here, he's going, you know, what's the big deal here? You have me. Am I not better than ten sons? So Hannah rose after they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli... Uh, the priest was sitting in the seat by the doorpost of the tabernacle of the Lord. 
And she was in bitterness of soul and prayed to the Lord and wept in anguish. And she made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a male child, then I will give him uh, to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall come upon his head. So here she is. She's pouring out her heart to the Lord. She's coming in prayer and in brokenness and, and she's, she's there before the Lord giving her heart to him. I don't think that she's trying to manipulate God when she gives this vow to him. This godly vow that she makes to the Lord. Lord, if you give me a son, then I will dedicate him to you, Lord, and no razor shall come upon his head. Of course, that she's speaking about what? That Nazarite vow that we learn about in Numbers chapter 6 and that we discussed when it came to Samson. You recall that the angel told Samson's mother that you're going to conceive and bear a son. His name is going to be Samson, and he's going to be a Nazarite from you know, his mother's womb. And that Nazarite vow meant that they were not to eat anything unclean. They were not to drink anything unclean. They were not to touch any dead animals. They were not to uh, put a razor to their heads. They were not to cut their hair. And so I'm going to dedicate him to you, Lord, And I think that, again, she's not trying to manipulate, but sharing her desire and burden to the Lord. And there's a big difference. I believe that she's praying with the real zeal of heart. And that is what is meant, I believe, when the Lord says to you and to me that that ask, please ask that your joy may be full. And we can come to the Lord and we can give our desires to him and cast our cares upon him because he cares for us. And be like that persistent woman that came to the judge and kept, you know, coming and asking the judge for mercy and for grace. As Jesus tells that story, that that's the way that we are to to be, just continually coming to the Lord. We can give him our hearts. And this is our desire. But we're going to see that in a few verses here that she's going to end up leaving as she has this conversation with Eli, who is the high priest. And she's no longer going to be sad. She's trusting in the Lord. That, that he's going to work. And that's where you and I come in as we give our hearts to the Lord and we pour our hearts to the Lord and continually come to the Lord. But then we leave it to the Lord, don't we? Then we trust in him that you're going to work in the way that you want to, Lord. And you're going to do what is best. And I know that I can just leave it in your hands. And so she makes this godly vow in verse 12. It happened as she continued praying before the Lord that Eli watched her mouth. Now Hannah spoke in her heart, only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli thought she was drunk. And so Eli said to her, how long will you be drunk? Put your wine away from you. And so I think it's Eli here is the high priest. And again, we're going to talk more about Eli. We have already been introduced uh, to his two sons in verse 3, Hopni and Phinehas. We're going to see that his two sons were very corrupt and did evil in the sight of the Lord. But here is Eli. He, I think this reflects kind of bad on him. She's pouring out her heart to the Lord. And she's just praying with her heart. And, and her mouth is moving, but words aren't really coming out. Have you ever been engaged in just fervent prayer where you just, you're pouring out your heart to the Lord? And, and, and maybe words aren't coming out, but you're just, you're just praying and, and to yourself. And you're praying to the Lord and quietly before the Lord. And that's what she's doing as she does this. No words, but engaged in prayer. And Eli thinks she's drunk. Now, I think that perhaps 
that this being a dark time in the days of the judges, that there were those who came to the tabernacle and perhaps they were drunk. They didn't take it seriously, the offering that they were bringing. I think that perhaps his two sons who were full of corruption and did you know, evil in the sight of the Lord and God's going to deal with them as we will see that perhaps they were ones that were drunk at the tabernacle. So this is something that Eli perhaps saw at times. And, and he's saying to her, you know, how long are you going to be drunk and put your wine away? And so verse 15, Hannah answered and said, No, my Lord, I'm a woman of sorrowful spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor intoxicating drink, but have poured out my soul before the Lord. And do not consider your maidservant a wicked woman, for out of the abundance of my complaint and grief I have spoken until now. And then Eli answered and said, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition which you have asked of him. And she said, Let your maidservant find favor in your sight. So the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. So she explains that, I'm not drunk. I've been pouring out my heart to the Lord. And Eli here blesses her and, and tells her to go in peace, and she does. And the reason that I believe that she goes in peace is because she is trusting God. As I mentioned to you, in the times where you feel anguish of soul, where you feel troubled or anxious or whatever it might be, you just pour your heart out to God. And we know that it would be Paul that would say in the book of Philippians chapter 4, be anxious for nothing, but through prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. So in those times where we're anxious, in those times where we're troubled, in those times that we're grieving, there's anguish, whatever, you go to the Lord. And you give him your supplication and prayer. Do it with thanksgiving. And then, as Paul goes on to say, with thanksgiving, and then as you make your request known to God, then the peace of God that passes understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. I know that when I go to the Lord and I just spend that time in prayer and giving it to him, when I am done with that time, I go away with peace because the Lord has ministered that peace to me. And I know that I've given it to him. And I know that he's going to work the very best in my life. I may not understand it all, how he's going to work. I may not see how he's going to work when I'm in the middle uh, of those difficulties. But I know that I can trust him and that he loves me and he'll never leave me and forsake me. And I know that I can continue to just cry out to him and just rest in his promises and know that he's going to work all things for good for those who love him who are called according to his purposes. And that's how we can have the peace of God that passes understanding. We want to have understanding in everything. God says, I'm going to give you something better, a peace that passes understanding as we go to him in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. And that's what Hannah is doing. And so in verse 19, And then they rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord and returned and came to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. It wasn't that the Lord had forgotten about her. It wasn't that the Lord said, oh, you know, Hannah, I got busy with some other people and got busy doing some things over here and the country's such a mess. I forgot all about you and now I remembered you. Yeah, I'll, I'll give you a child. But it's saying here that the Lord is honoring her. The Lord's working on behalf of her. The Lord's going to bless her here. And so it came to pass in the process of time that Hannah conceived and bore a son called his name Samuel, saying, because I've asked for him from the Lord. And so here, 
She has Samuel. He's going to be the main character here of this book, for much of this book. Samuel means heard of God. And she worships because she was trusting God, um, knowing that God is going to work. And so it would be verse 21. Now the man Helkanah and his house went up to offer the Lord the yearly sacrifice in his vow. You know, even though it was a dark time, God still has his remnant of people that are going to worship and offer sacrifice just as prescribed. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, Not until the child is weaned, then I will take him, that he may appear before the Lord and remain there forever. So Hilkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only let the Lord establish his word. Then the woman stayed and nursed her son until she had weaned him. And so Hannah here, nursing uh, Samuel, she's going to stay, and she's not going to go back to Shiloh to the tabernacle until he's weaned. Now, a couple things here. I think that Elkanah here it speaks of his desire for Samuel to be dedicated to the Lord as well. Because you remember in the book of Deuteronomy when it came to the vows, that if a wife made a vow that the husband could um, say, no, it's not going to happen. And, and all of a sudden, the vow would be taken away. It wouldn't be confirmed. If the husband stepped in and said, wife, no, that's not going to happen. But he didn't do that. And I believe that Elkanah here, that he also wanted to keep this vow with Hannah that she had made to the Lord. We're going to dedicate this son that you've given through Hannah, the one that I love. And we're going to dedicate him to the Lord. So she's waiting till he's weaned. And, and not only, I believe, just nursing. It has a broader meaning. I mean, you know, Elkanah's not going to, or Hannah, uh, go up and, you know, take a box of pampers up to Eli at the tabernacle. He's going to wait till he's weaned, wait till, you know, he can kind of take care of himself. And so probably at least three, maybe perhaps four years old before she is going to take him to the tabernacle. And so verse 24, now when she had weaned him, she took him up with her with three bowls, one ephah of flour and a skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord in Shiloh. And the child was young. And then they slaughtered a bull and brought the child to Eli. And she said, oh, my Lord, it's your soul lives my Lord, I am the woman who stood by you here praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition, which I have asked of him. Therefore, I have also lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he shall be lent to the Lord. So they worship the Lord there. So she brings him up to Shiloh. They give offerings. She says to Eli, remember me? I was the woman, you know. She's gracious. She doesn't remind him that you're the one that thought I was drunk, you know. But she says, I'm the one that, that was in agony a few years back. You, you remember? And, and, and you gave a blessing. And, and, and the Lord, you know, heard my prayers. And the Lord has blessed. And so I have this child. So he's going to be lent to the Lord for the service of the Lord. You know, as we close here tonight, there's some things that we learn from Hannah that I think are very, very important. And number one is this, that the most important thing in her life she gives to God. The most important thing in her life that she gives to God. This child that she had agonized in having a child and desired to have one, she is going to give him to the Lord, to the tabernacle, and we're going to see that Samuel is going to be raised in a tabernacle. That was not an easy thing. 
And I pray that those things that are the most important things in our lives, whether it be your spouse, whether it be your children, whether it be things that you have, possessions, have you given them fully to the Lord? Have you committed them, have you committed those things to the Lord? Have you said, Lord, I am thankful that you have blessed me, and I know that every good gift comes from above. When it comes to my wife, ladies, when you say it comes to my husband, when it comes to my children, when it comes to my family, when it comes to the opportunity to minister, when it comes to the things that we have, have you truly given them to the Lord? And committed those things to the Lord, to where He is the priority. And you're a good steward of what God has given you. And, and you are moving in the responsibilities that you have. You see, everything that we have, I pray, the important things particularly, have we given them to the Lord or do we say, no, this is mine. And this is my time and this is my deal and this is what I'm going to do. And we don't really give those things to the Lord. And I'll do as I please and it belongs to me. And, and we push God out of those areas, whether it be with relationships or with our kids or whatever it might be, the things that we have. Hannah here, the most important thing in this life that she had, she gives to the Lord and dedicates to the Lord because she had made that vow and she had such devotion to Him. Second of all, we see that Hannah made it a priority that she, not only the thing, thing that was most important, but she was one that dedicated her child to the Lord, and Elkanah was as well in that decision. And parents, I know, and you know, that we are to be ones that we dedicate our children to the Lord. One of the things that we're going to do this Sunday at the second service is we're going to do baby dedications. I love doing baby dedications. Those are the part uh, or things that I love to do being a pastor is, is baptisms and baby dedications and weddings and those kinds of things. It's such a joyous occasion. But when the parents come up and we dedicate this child to the Lord, those parents are saying that we desire to raise this child in the ways of the Lord. And we take that very seriously. And we are standing here before this congregation to do that. And to ask for your prayers and your support and your blessing in this. And as we pray for them, that God will give them wisdom in raising their child in the ways of the Lord. And Hannah and Elkanah were ones that dedicated here Samuel to, to the Lord fully and completely. And I hope that you and I as parents that we have done the same thing. But there's a third thing here that I want to also mention. And I think this is very important. That Hannah here, not only is she given God the most important thing in her life to the Lord, and not only has she dedicated her child to the Lord, but listen, I believe that she is enabling him to where he's going to be equipped for the calling that God has in his life. And I want to say this, that parents, we need to pray for our kids. As we make that dedication to the Lord, it's more than boy, I hope my kids grow up and they stay close to the Lord. I hope my kids grow up and they, they still, you know, go to church when they get out of school. Uh, that's an important prayer, but here's my prayer as well. That, Lord, help me equip my child for what it is that you have for them and the calling that you're going to have on their life. Lord, help me to raise them in such a way 
that they are being equipped. And that means that I have made, and, and my husband, parents that you have made, that dedication and that commitment that we're going to train our children in the ways of the Lord and teaching them the word of the Lord. And, and always trying to equip them so that in life, when they get on their own, that they may be able to serve the Lord. And I understand that they're going to have decisions to make. And I understand that, that, that when they're young, they're going to that they're gonna perhaps drive us crazy at times. But pray, Lord, help me not only to just, just bring them to church, but give me wisdom in equipping them for life, that they may walk close with you, and they might serve you. Lord, that they might understand that you have a calling for them in life. But then there's a fourth thing, and I, I just want to mention it quickly. Chapter 2, verse 1, And Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. I smile at my enemies because I re rejoice in your salvation. We're going to look at that Hannah's prayer and praise here next week. But I wanted to look at verse 1 because here's the fourth thing that we, I believe that we learned from Hannah. Not only did she dedicate the most important thing in her life to the Lord, fully giving them Samuel to the Lord, dedicating her children to the Lord, not only equipping him that he might fulfill the ministry that God has for him, which is going to be an amazing ministry. But fourthly, she's one that was dedicated and devoted and loved the Lord and was one who praised the Lord. And parents, one of the greatest things that we can offer to our kids is for them to look at our lives and to see parents or grandparents that you're committed to the Lord, that you're a mom or a dad or a grandma or a grandpa that's committed to the Word of God and to the ways of God, and they're one that you praise God in your home. I think that's one of the greatest things that we can offer to our kids. Because if the Lord is not the priority of your life and isn't the priority of your heart, you're going to be slacking in raising your children in the ways of the Lord. If the Lord isn't really some uh, the priority of your life, in every area of your life, it's going to affect the way that you raise your children in the ways of the Lord. But if you yourself, parent, are one that I love you, Lord, and, and Lord, I praise you, and I go to you for everything, moms and dads, seeking the wisdom of God, that's one of the best things that you can offer to your kids. Because you don't know what that child that you have, that I know takes a lot of energy and effort in raising them up and, and, and working with them and feeding them and clothing them and taking them to ball games and all the other things that we have to do. You don't know what that child may do in the things of the Lord, just as Samuel is going to lead a nation out of darkness into some wonderful days and be used powerfully to speak to a whole nation. To look at those kids and to pray for them. And that's what I hope that we do, not only in our own families, but that's why I'm kind of emphasizing, you know, you pray for the families and for the kids that are here. Because as we get closer to the return of the Lord in these last days, I believe that there is such an attack on them from the world and from the enemy 
trying to, to deceive them, trying to pull them into the things of the world, trying to, to tear apart the family. There's such an attack on our kids and the family. And what you have to offer them is you yourself being dedicated to the Lord, growing in the Lord, committed to the Lord, being a man or woman of prayer and of praise. And you offer your children to the Lord, dedicated and raising them up in the ways of the Lord. That was Hannah, and that's what we learned from her. And so, Father, we thank you. We thank you so much for this first chapter as, as we begin to look at this time in, in a nation that there was dark times, but, Lord, you're still working. And, Lord, we see a woman who was godly, who gave the most important thing in her life, her son, to you. And so, Father, I pray that tonight, that if there's anything, anything in our lives, whether it's relationships or children, whether it's a spouse, whether it's what we have, our business, our work, if we're holding anything back from you, the Lord, that we would give it to you tonight as we just continue to worship. That we know, Lord, that you desire to bless and do exceedingly abundantly above all that you ask, we ask or think. But Lord, we need to release it and give it to you, not hold back and try to do things in our own energy, in our own flesh, in our own wisdom. Father, I do pray for, as I hear this church full of the voices of children, I see all the young people that are here that go to the youth rooms. Lord, we lift them up to you. Give us wisdom as parents, as grandparents, ministering to them. And Lord, teaching them your ways. Knowing that, Father, we want to help equip them for what you have for them. It means praying for them and talking with them, sharing scripture with them. That we would make that the priority of our hearts every single day. Lord, that you would touch them, protect them, keep them close to you, because we know the enemy is desiring to pull them away. And we ourselves can get so distracted by the things of the world and the busyness of life. Lord, that we would stay close to you, keep the priorities of our homes, and that is you. And the praises and the thanksgiving of the Lord and the word of the Lord is spoken in our homes and to our children. Father, as we just come to worship now, I just pray that if anyone's here that, Lord, maybe things are heavy on their hearts, it would be a time of just giving it to you. Just praying, worshiping, and that we would all leave away, leave this place with joy in our hearts and a peace that passes understanding. So bless this time that we have with you right now as we just continue worshiping for a few moments. Just drawing close to you, giving our hearts to you in praise and worship. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. We're